Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwurzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Jeff Burns, CEO of Affiliated Development. Jeff is a good friend and a big time multifamily developer down here in South Florida and throughout Florida. He develops market rate and workforce housing and has become an expert at getting money from cities and figuring out how to structure these deals. We talk about his new fund. We discuss his strategies on development. We even get into the weeds into how he's underwriting deals, how he's raising capital, what works and what doesn't work when you're building this type of development and how to blend market rate and workforce housing in one building. Please enjoy my conversation today with Jeff Burns. All right, Jeff. So I really want to know how you got your start into real estate. Got my start on the banking side of the business. So out of school, I went to work for my father, who was in mortgage banking. And we were putting together primarily construction loans for large uh, projects in the Midwest. I'm from Kansas City and uh, originally went to school at University of Missouri and, and moved back to Kansas City. And we were doing these large construction loans and actually syndicating syndicating them out to community banks. So it was a, it was a great way to learn the business because you know, we were underwriting different asset types and different development strategies and different markets. And, and it was a really great way to, to learn the business. What was the name of the bank? So BB Syndication Services, Inc. That was um, like a big 08 thing, right? Because I think my dad was involved in banking at the same time as well. Yep. And we looked at a couple of broken hotel deals that came out of mm-hmm. that model where- That's right. You know, he was on the board of a bank that owned one of these syndications. Yes. Yes. So it was good in the sense that you have all these community banks, right? And you have to kind of understand the Midwest. I mean, you you have these banks out in the middle of Iowa in a rural area, and they had really no way to diversify out of their local economy other than to make, you know, they were making tractor loans and and things like that. So for them to have an opportunity to invest in a, a, a real estate deal was in a city that they would have never been otherwise able to compete on or, or have a piece of, it was good in that sense. Uh, it was bad in the sense that you did have a lot of, you know, unsophisticated people involved in making or, or buying in on, on loans that they probably didn't know enough about. And would you stay on to administer those loans or would someone else handle the administration? Yeah, someone else handled it. So we had a lead bank and they would 
they would be the ones to you know administer the loans and service the loans. We were strictly an origination, so I would I would negotiate with a developer, you know, go back to loan committee, get beat up a little bit, you know, and then we we you know make a deal, and then and we we were also involved in the syndication of it. So you know you know we would usually do an event where we would uh, you know have a lot of these community bankers come in, do a luncheon or something, explain the merits of the deal, answer questions, and then we would open it up and, and they would either buy in or pass and we would oversubscribe it because you'd always have a little yep. bit of fallout. And that's how we do them. My, I think one of my first deals was like an $80 million construction loan. Really? Yeah. It's kind of like syndicating your own real estate deals, but yeah. without any risk and you could learn for free. So yes. what were some of the big things you learned in the peak of this time? Well, so you know, getting started in the, it started in the banking business back in 2005 and six and seven, you saw everything was good. Yeah. I mean, you saw, uh, you know, groups like, uh, you know, Chorus Bank who are out there doing 90, 95% non-recourse loans on condo deals with no deposits, you know, and you saw very reckless fundamentals. And, you know, from my perspective, and one of the things I was able to take advantage of was I was able to you know, you weren't just underwriting a deal. So you were underwriting a development strategy and you, you were understanding that some of these developers were just literally shooting from the hip and others were a lot more conservative, thoughtful and long-term driven. And, and, uh, and so it was a, from, you know, my standpoint, a tremendous way to not just learn what areas of the business I had an interest in, and and uh, eventually, you know, got in the development by, you know, really, you know, learning a lot about the different asset classes and what what might be a good strategy, but also what things to to do and what things not to do as a, as a as a developer. Okay, so you're a banker. How do you get the itch to be an entrepreneur and get the guts to go out and actually do it? Yeah, it it happened a little bit by accident. I was up in Milwaukee. We were at the time, you know, originating some business up in that area of the country. And I met a developer who had primarily uh, done townhomes and kind of small condominium projects. And so met him, sat down, talked about a loan that they were doing. We, we decided to pass it. It was, it was a condominium, high rise condominium loan. You know, on the banking side, you saw things a little bit you know, ahead of everybody else. What year, what time was this? This was right around 2006. Okay. Yeah. So we, we were starting to, you know, you were starting to see some, some indicators that, that uh, maybe the market, uh, particularly in, in the condominium sector, wasn't going to do well. And especially in, in secondary markets like Milwaukee. So we, you know, decided to pass informed developer, you know, this was not something that was probably going to make a lot of sense. Long story short is, he uh, convinced me to basically partner up with him and take the deal from a, a condominium for sale uh, strategy to a rental strategy. That's something that we were definitely more familiar in uh, or familiar with. And for me, I had always admired the ability to take something, a piece of raw land, yep. uh, and create something out of out of nothing. And, and that creative aspect of, of development was something I was always very drawn to and, and you know, and something I, I wasn't necessarily getting on the banking side of things. So that's where I, I started to, to shift over. I formed my dad. I wanted to be a developer. 
coming from, I know that you worked with a lot with your father. And yep. There's a dynamic there. Yep. And he thought I was crazy. You know, of course, my father being in, in banking, you know, naturally made him somewhat risk adverse, <laughs> but was very supportive as well and, and encouraged me and helped me along the way. It was very instrumental in helping helping me uh, get into the development side of the business. So, And are you still partnered with this gentleman today? Or uh, No. So he, you know, Milwaukee guy, we, we did some projects up there, worked on some, some deals together and uh, really a terrific guy, really a, an innovative guy, somebody who I, I still keep in, in contact with, but we're not, well, I guess we, we are still partnered and on a project that we still own together, but aren't doing any new deals together. So, at what point do you decide that you want to be in multifamily mm-hmm. for rent? You had your experience with the condo side. Once you did the deal with this first guy, was it, okay, I'm sold on this asset class and this is where I want to spend my time? Yes. Well, I would say that, let me back up and I'll tell you a little bit about that deal because that deal was what really kind of drove our strategy and, and, what, and what we're doing today. The at the time, as you probably know, you know, the development business was at an all-time high, and then of course it 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 tanked, and you know we hit the Great Recession, and we had still not completed our our dealers or gotten our financing and and, and started construction. This was a thirty-story high-rise apartment tower in a in a market that in, in a part of town that was definitely kind of in the path of growth, but but certainly not experienced. Uh, very much investment or development activity prior to us. It was, you know, so you could say it was a pretty risky deal. So, you know, of course the great recession hits, banks aren't lending and and investors aren't investing. And so in my banking side, you know, my previous life as a banker, uh, we had done a lot of deals that had included some sort of public finance component. So if you take a, a cornfield out in the middle of Kansas, yeah, it's always going to be a cornfield unless you layer in incentives. And so I, I became very familiar with different public finance incentive programs, uh, sales tax revenue bonds, star bonds is what they're called in the Midwest, and and or TID, TIF, you know, all, all kinds of different tax incentive strategies, you know, to help uh, a deal that would otherwise be infeasible and help it become feasible. And, and so when I got inv- involved in the development side of the business on this project, which, which was an apartment deal, you know, we were, you know, we were, you know, kind of taken aback because, you know, there, there weren't banks out there that were really very interested in lending to a, a guy with no experience and a guy with very limited experience to, you know, two young guys who were looking to do a very bold project. In Did you own the land at that time? And we own, we own the land. And so we got creative. And so, you know, I kind of went to my partner and said, listen, I think if we go to the city and we work with them on some financing incentives, we might be able to pull this off. We're also going to go to the federal government and we're going to work on what's called a HUD 221 D4 loan, which is a government insured product that was, uh, you know, not commonly used, especially on a, on a project of this size. And then on the equity side, we, we uh, were fortunate enough. We had a partner, uh, our third partner, or I guess uh, it, was, it was me and, and two other guys. Our third partner, a guy named uh, Tan Lowe. And, and Tan comes from a, um, you know, a, a well-to-do family in Hong Kong. And at that time, you know, they, a lot of folks over there were looking to get their money out of, out of the country and invest yep. in U.S. real estate. So 
what ultimately ended up happening was we worked with the city. Uh, we were able to structure a $9.3 million TIF, which helped us obviously kind of bridge the gap of feasibility. We did a, about a $42.5 million HUD 221D4 loan. The AFL-CIO, the, the union pension out of DC, was our Ginny May investor, uh, which helped us obviously politically and, and you know, really helped us from a construction standpoint as well. And, and then raise the rest out of Hong Kong. So we were explaining TIF and HUD to wealthy Hong Kong investors. And, and uh, you can only imagine, you know, uh, how that went, but we got it done. So. And what was the leverage on that deal? Like approximately? Well, the le- Is it you high know, leverage oh, or low yeah, leverage? Very high, very high compared. I mean, you know, you know, comparative to that time, we had a low <laughs> leverage, right? right? But today it's very high leverage. I, I would say that, you know, we were probably in the 70 range, probably okay. 75. You know, the HUD loan is a 40-year fixed non-recourse product. Does that exist today? It does. It does. Generally, they're going to underwrite to about 120 debt service, de- debt service coverage ratio. But with the with a 40-year term, you, you can afford you can afford to to do a little bit more leverage. It's not an easy loan to get. That's not an easy product. Uh, you know, working your way through the HUD process, you certainly have to have patience and you got to know what you're doing. Uh, is it more about patience, less about qualification? So if you're willing to grind through it, you can get the loan with limited track record? No, I mean, listen, I, I, I will say this. It's very much about qualifications. <laughs> you know, at that time, we were, while we didn't have a tremendous amount of experience or, or I didn't have really any experience, my partner had very limited we didn't have a tremendous amount of money. I had almost no money. At that time, we looked pretty good because borrowers had a line of banks chasing them every yep. year. And so uh, HUD at that time was very focused on, you know, making sure that, you know, guys weren't getting ready to file for bankruptcy when they were applying for their loans. So we looked actually pretty good on paper compared to a lot of those guys. Track record wise, you know, we didn't have a tremendous amount of experience, but we had we had a good general contractor and that that made a big difference to them. We had a good solid game plan. We had the city involvement. That that makes a difference when you're when you're dealing with government insured program programs. They like to see that other governments are involved in helping you incentivize development. And we had the uh, the unions behind us, uh, which was you know in that part of the country is, is is very helpful. So, in your strategy today, are you still using these types of HUD loans? We, we are, well, you know, we haven't done a D4 product, but we have applied and we have been granted invitation letters to go and do those deals. They generally, they, they take quite a while. They take a long time, you know, and time is money and risk and all that. So we haven't closed on a, on a 221 D4, but we have closed on a 223F, which is a very similar government program that's a takeout loan. Uh, and we're doing quite a bit of those uh, just because we, you know, we, we understand them, you know, we understand the product and we've worked with, you know, we've got an experience of working with HUD and, and going through it. So we, we are still doing some of that. Yeah. So in these markets that you're operating in now or back then, how do you go about even figuring out what, how do you know if a city wants to just give away free money to guys <clears throat> who are looking to build units in their town? How, how do you go about finding those cities and those programs? Well, so what I'll tell you is with the cities, you know, it's, it's you got to identify cities that have the need, right? So that's the first thing we do is 
we look at a market that really needs this type of product. You know, right now, I mean, workforce housing is is getting a, a significant amount of of press and and attention. You know, I think I heard the other day that, that you know, governors are are now making it one of their top three priorities in, in a lot of these states. Mayors, it's their number one priority, and more times than not, in certain cities. So it's it's gaining uh, recognition, not not just on a, a for a while. It was just this part of Florida, you know, it was South Florida, yeah, South Florida issue, hot market, hot market, big rents, yeah, big rents, and 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 then it became. You know, hey, Tampa's got a, a workforce housing issue, and Orlando's got it. Now Jacksonville, and now you you go just about anywhere in the in the state of Florida, and 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 people are really feeling it. And, and really, I don't think it resonates until it hits home with people, and, and people really start to, you know, have kids that graduate and are struggling to find a decent place to live at a, at a reasonable cost. And so that's all started to happen. So you know, going back to your question, we identify and target areas that are that we can uh, make the, the greatest amount of, of impact. And so we look for areas that have where the major employment centers are. We look for jobs. You know, that's probably the number one thing. We look for the natural progression of growth. We look for cities that, that are either on the kind of cusp of, of really growing or, or have experienced a tremendous amount of rapid growth, because that's usually where a lot of that disparity lies. And uh, we look for other high cost housing. I want to be right next to the to the deal who's, you know, the guy who's getting four thousand dollars a month in rent because if we can come in and offer a unit that same unit at twenty one hundred dollars a month. We're making a big difference. We're making a big impact. So we start there. And then you also have to understand and and really uh, be knowledgeable on what of, you know, what pro not what programs are available, what 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 tools you can utilize in some of these cities. You know, some of these cities have a lot more money than others and have other, some of them have programs that are established. I would say more times than not, we're involved in helping uh, create an incentive program on a local level that we then go ahead and utilize. And so it's about kind of thinking outside of the box, not relying on programs that are currently in place, but going in and, and sitting down you know, they call it a public-private partnership for a reason. You sit down at the table with them, you come up with solutions that work both for them and and for us, and and then you know that's how we've been able to accomplish some of these some of these deals. Okay, so break down. Maybe you can't give away all your secrets, but break down how that works. Like, yeah, pick any city that you sure. go into. You just call up the city manager and you're like, "Hey, I, I think you guys have a housing shortage. I'd like to talk to you about." some incentives on how to, how, how does that work? Do you have to bring in a lobbyist? Like, do you go to these big commission meetings? Is it like closed doors? What does that look like? Well, so, you know, so when I first got into development, I, I wasn't, I was living here. So in 2010, when we finally got the project going in the Midwest, I'd moved down here with, with my wife. To Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale. And we'd moved here just, you know, for, you know, it was a you know, beautiful place to live, high quality You're ahead of the game. Yeah, all, all the reasons why, why everybody's moved down here and stayed. Um, and so, you know, I, it, it took a while, but I, I did two things. I developed relationships organically, right? So I got to know a lot of the city officials just because I was, I was living here and I was interested in what was going on with this, with these different cities and some of the challenges they were facing and so on and so forth. But I was also able to educate myself on the market in the market. 
as you know, in the multifamily space, in the multifamily rental space, there's two types of developers. There's the market rate housing guys, and then there's the affordable housing guys and the tax credit guys. Those guys are out there fulfilling a need tax credit space. You know, they're working with Florida Housing Finance Corp on various, you know, four or 9% deals. Uh, that's generally how they're doing their, their, their projects. And it's a huge need and, and very, very capable players out there doing that. There's market rate housing guys. But what we learned was there, there really isn't anybody in between, right? And, and if you want to spend, you know, 17, 18, $1,900 a month on an apartment and you live in Fort Lauderdale, you're probably going to be, you know, guided to a project that's a two-story old motel style yep. building with a window unit, surface parking, no amenities, right? And so, you know, so was, we realized that there was a need. And and starting out, we had to educate a lot of these cities what that need was and what that meant. And, and be very careful about that and thoughtful about that. Because sometimes when you go into communities and you start talking about workforce housing, you automatically get, oh, they're building Section 8 housing in right. my community, and it's, it's going to come along with various, you know. So what does workforce mean to you then? Like, what what is that classification? Yeah. So, you know, workforce, well, the state statute says that workforce housing is between the 80% of AMI and 120% of AMI. Now, in South Florida and other, other markets here in, in, in the state, they've taken that, you know, uh, a 120 and they've raised it to 140. Um, in some instances, they've actually raised it a little bit beyond that. But uh, really what it means is housing for moderate middle-income families and households. And, and, and you know, these are folks that have, have a, uh, making a great wage. They're, they're contributing uh, significantly towards society and, and, and really, you know, not to, you know, kind of steal the term, from, you know, during COVID, but you know, they call it, they said the essential employees and essential workers and all this. These are folks that we, that we rely on as a, as a community. So it's not the laptop class. So these are just the normal working people in every city doing the jobs that we all need. It, you know, it's wide ranging. So if you if you look at one of our projects, you know, you're going to see everybody from nurses. Of course, who you would think, right? Right. Nurses and police officers, and teachers and firefighters, those folks. It's entry level uh, business owners, you know, uh, small business owners, entry level corporate positions, young attorneys, you know, uh, obviously healthcare. You know, we've got, we have a lot of healthcare workers in here, and that's something we're working very closely with with certain um, hospital districts on on trying to figure out how to accommodate their needs a little bit more because you know they struggle with that. But it's it's across the board. Insurance, you know, people that work in the insurance, you know, industry, and and of course recently, you know more and more folks that, that work remotely, you know, and, and people that have moved here from, you know, California and Illinois and New York and some of these places that, you know, they still, you know, maybe they work for Microsoft, right? But, but you know, these are folks that can make up to, they can make six figures and, and they're spending, you know, 50, 60% of their income on housing. It's crazy. And so, so, you know, our job is to, is to go out there, you know, build class A, luxury product, offer them an experience that they can get where they're spending twice as much, but give them a, give them a rent that they can afford. And generally speaking, one of the things that we've had to educate a lot of these uh, cities on uh, very early on, but, but, but still to this day is what that translates to in terms of creating the creation of economic development, because you have folks right now 
if they're spending 60% of their income on housing, have very little money to go out and go to restaurants and, and, and do things that help feed the local economy. If we're able to take that from 60% down to 30%, and that, 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 that resident has more money in their pocket. And what are they going to do? They're going to go to the restaurants and they're going to go spend money in the community. And that's what we want. And it has an impact on, on traffic, you know, you, you know, being a developer, you know, one of the things you hear from just about every, uh, uh neighborhood group out there is yep. traffic, yep. you know, and especially in a fast growing city like Fort Lauderdale. Well, if you're able to keep, how's your workforce where they work and they're not having to, you know, get in their cars every day and drive to I-95 and then drive, you know, uh, to a less cost, you know, cost of community, it's going to li- eliminate a tremi- you know, tremendous amount of, of traffic congestion. So I'm learning something new. So basically what you're saying is you're building not what I would consider low-income housing, which is limited amenities, pretty basic functional housing. You're building effectively class A product but you're able to rent it for less because you're getting subsidized by the government. Is that how to think about it? Absolutely. Uh, if, if I take you through our projects, Jake, and I, I'll put our deals up against any other project out there. So if I take you through it, you're going you're gonna to get what you expect in any other class A luxury community in the city. And, and so our product is, is just the same as a market rate community, luxury market rate community. What we do is we, we structure these incentives and then we are required, you know, on a deal by deal basis, depending on, on the, you know, on ultimately what the set asides are, but we're required to keep a portion of that building at a certain rent level, not to exceed and at a certain income level, not to exceed. So all of our projects are mixed income. So they all have a, a market rate component. They all have market rate units. Uh, the purpose of that is because you don't want to stigmatize right the the property by saying that it's it's restricted. I would say I would venture to say that in in just about all of our projects, people that live there have no idea that there's even a restriction in place. So if you if you you know lease it, manage it accordingly, that that tenant doesn't even know that you know that there is a restriction in place through the government. But but there is, and 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 so you're on average, if you're that tenant, you know you're getting anywhere between a twenty and thirty five percent discount to market, which is substantial, you know, and and it helps people's, uh, you know, helps their lifestyles, and and you know, and for for us, you know, it's a way for us to be able to, you know, do what we love doing, which is development. You know, the create, you know, you do it. The creative aspect of development is so much fun creating these communities and, and, and experience in, in a development project, but do it while we're actually, you know, helping people and helping, helping families uh, afford to live, you know, in, in these, in these cities. So what kind of incentives then are you getting from the cities? Is it debt? Are they subsidizing the rent once the unit is open, fully operating? How, how does that look? Well, so it's cities and counties. Okay. Um, so tax incentives. So, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll do a, a TIF, you know, where we pay our real estate taxes. We get a portion of that back. Got it. Uh, refunded to us. There's grant, uh, grant dollars uh, through CRAs. We work with the county, you know, on certain programs. Uh, we're actually working with uh, Broward County currently on a, on a new program that we're hoping to ro- roll out on a, on a 400 unit project that we have here in Fort Lauderdale. 
worked with Palm Beach County on the Workforce Housing Exchange Program. Very unique program. And I actually worked, uh, partnered with GL Homes on a particular deal where we were able to basically take on their workforce housing obligations. So they were able to receive certain density bonuses by agreeing to do workforce housing. That's necessarily didn't fit within their model on this particular development project. So we were able to assume their obligation and build those units. And and we uh, took a payment from them in order to do that. And that was a, a way of, of providing gap funding for that deal. You know, I would say there's one project in Palm Beach County. I mean, I think, I think we have, you know, five different incentive programs. You know, we have some infrastructure bonds. We have NSP dollars. We have some exchange dollars. We've got some CRA, TIF, some you know, some grant dollars, you know, we just get creative and that's what we've been successful doing. And, and again, we work a, lo- a lot of times on the front side of developing a lot of this policy with cities and with counties. And, and we don't mind being the, you know, uh, being the first ones out and, and, uh, you know, being the group that works with them to develop the policy, but also implement it for the first times. So riches are usually in the niches, but why do you think in your market, it is such a niche. And a lot of developers, big multifamily developers throughout the country tend to focus on just market rent, class A. Why don't you have more competition in your space? You know, I probably get that question, you know, uh, more than any other question. I think it's because, as I explained, there's the market rate guys and there's the tax credit guys. Tax credit is a very, it's a, it's a, very process-driven business. There are rules. You better know those rules. You follow those rules to a T, and if you don't, you get DQ'd. It's a very rule-driven business. And that process, and, and those guys that understand that, understand that very, very much. And they understand how to how to work that process and how to get it to work for their benefit. Outside-of-the-box type stuff is generally not what they're accustomed to doing. And so... I think that a lot of them don't don't get into it because, you know, they have their rules. <laughs> the rules have been in place a long time, and and quite frankly, they've figured out a way to make a lot of money on those rules, and 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 that's why they that's why they focus on that. On the market rate side, you know, the the housing space is very complicated. When you start talking about, you know, negotiating and structuring incentives. It's not as simple as just saying, well, this is what we're going to do. It's it's understanding how banks are going to treat it. It's understanding how investors are going to look at this. It's it's knowing how to put these programs in place so that it works for the private equity model. And and then also on the compliance side of things. You know, when you're managing, when you're when you're leasing, I mean it's very, very different from a market rate product. Our goal is to make it so that the tenant doesn't feel like, you know, their experience is not that it's any different than going to a market rate, but I can tell you behind the scenes, it's very different. Really? And, oh yeah. And what's and different about it? The, the way you income qualify people, you know, the way that we, we market and we make sure that people are fitting within the income class that they qualify for. So do you have some people that are, have a much higher income that are trying to get Absolutely. You know, they hear that, oh man, you know, I know so-and-so and they they got a unit for $1,800 a month. You know, I want that unit, you know, and we tell them, okay, you know, uh, you know, give us some of your information. We And if they, if they make too much, then we let them know that, 
you know, we, we don't have anything in that price point that's available for them, but you know, uh, we steer them to a unit that, that hopefully works for them. And, and, uh, but it's, it's a, you know, it's very intensive, uh, both on the front side, getting a deal closed. Uh, it's intensive and, and it just from a, a management and compliance standpoint. So what's the chicken and the egg kind of story in your world? Are If you're going into a new market, mm-hmm. you mentioned you're in Palm Beach. Let's take a new market that you don't have any investment. Are you finding the land, tying it up, and then going to the city and figuring out what you can do? Or are you first going to the city, trying to structure a deal, and then maybe finding a piece of land? No. So we, So good question. We're finding a piece of land. We know generally what works and what doesn't work. We also have a general understanding of what might be available from a gap funding perspective or what kind of programs we might be able to utilize. A lot of that's just done, you know, based upon our experience of, of doing, you know, 10 plus, you know, public private partnership deals with various cities. So, and so we'll, we'll go tie up that piece of property and, and then we'll sit down and where there's a will, there's a way, right? And, and so usually we're meeting with city leadership very, very, the very, very beginning. One of the unique things about our company is that we have in-house architecture and interior design. Really? So we can move very, very quickly in terms of putting, you know, putting a project together and, and putting our materials together. And that helps. Um, oh, yeah. Especially if certain land sellers are get, got you on a, on a uh, tight or on a short fuse, you know, we can um, we can move pretty quickly. But we sit down and we and, and we look to basically understand right right off the right off the bat you know, is there a desire? And if there's a will, there will be a way. We will f- figure out a way. We're creative guys and and uh, we've got a track record of being able to, you know, structure certain things that work for us. Now, it's important to also note that our projects are not just about housing and, and, and workforce housing. One of the large pieces of our business is redevelopment, right? And going into areas that are traditionally underserved. And being incentivized because we're first movers in areas. And, and, and a good example of that, a project you probably know that we did here in Fort Lauderdale called the 613. Yes. So west of the tracks on Cistrunk, historic northwest here in Fort Lauderdale, you know, has certainly, you know, not experienced the, the same amount of investment and growth as other parts of the city. The train tracks have certainly been the dividing line for yep. a, a period of time between African-American and, and, uh, rest of the community. And I, th- I think that that's another, you know, key compart or key component of our, our business is we, we had try to identify projects that not just have that not, not just where we can go in and fulfill a housing need, but where we can go in and actually accomplish the significant redevelopment uh, project that's going to help boost an area that might be otherwise, you know, sitting in the same place, you know, uh, several years down the road if, if had not, you know, we had not gone in and made, made a tremendous investment. So development's so hard. And I always think about, you know, how fun it is to build something, mm-hmm. but you got to have the vision. You got to convince other people of that vision. You got to tie up the land. You are very experienced in developing complicated deals. So what have you found to be the best way to get a piece of land under contract? Are you closing? Are you just keeping an option on it until you get all your approvals and all the incentives done? How does that process work at Affiliated now? 
So I, well, I would tell you that 90 plus percent of the sites that we uh, purchase are off market. I found that if you just drive a market and you get out of your car and you go up and you knock on somebody's door, or you wander around their business, somebody's eventually going to come out and talk to you. We p- purchased most of our property doing that. Um, just driving around, <laughs> like through the broker network or literally you guys in us. your office? Us. And you writing letters, calling, knocking on doors? Yeah, what are you doing? amazing. You know, what's the, the, you know, on Google, the little guy you drop down and you walk yeah. down the street. I mean, that, that, guy's, that guy's key, you know, because you get... You know, you walk him down the street and you'll see a sign, you know, usually maybe somebody's business or something. And then, you know, you call on him, you just cold call him or, or you show up. One time we walked into a, a church and the the pastor was sitting there, you know, kind of in the lobby. And we walked up to him and we said, hey, listen, we're not brokers. Uh, we're buyers. Would you be interested in selling us your your property? And so that that's how we've we've had the greatest amount of success doing it. We work with brokers as well and, and brokers uh, bring us property. But we're we're pretty scrappy land buyers. More times than not, we're we're um you know going in and changing the zoning or or going in and doing a, a PUD or something that uh, allows us to do what is, is not currently uh, zoned for. And so yeah, we. I mean, listen. You try to get as long a contract as you can. You know, in some markets that works, in some markets, you know, you're not, you're you're less successful in terms of getting getting people to to give you a bunch of time. I would say the market we're heading into is going to become more and more of a buyer's market, or it's been a seller's market, as you know, for a long time. It's been really really difficult uh, finding reasonably priced land. So, if it's a buyer's market. Where are you getting your, where historically has your equity come from and where do you think you're trending now in terms of your capital, your capital mm-hmm. partners or those institutionals? Are you syndicating out high net worth family office? What does that look like? So good question. So in 2000, let's see, that would be 2021, we closed, uh, my partner and I, Nick, we closed on a $125 million just fully discretionary fund. Really? That's so, awesome. Yeah, we we uh, were in the fund uh, business. That was our that would be our first fund that we've raised. Our investors are pr- uh, primarily comprised of public pension plans. So we have a lot of police, fire, and general employee pension plans. They're everything from Miami Beach all the way up to St. Augustine. We have uh, fourteen different plans invested with us currently. Uh, we also have uh, close family office relationships, and a, a couple in particular. That, that we we work very closely with on deals. And so it gives us a lot of flexibility. You know, there's deals that we've we've done entirely with the fund and there's uh, deals where, you know, the fund takes a percentage and, we, and we'll bring in one of our family office uh, relationships to take a portion uh, of as well. So, you know, that's given us a, a tremendous amount of, of leverage when, when you're going in and, and buying, not, not just, you know, buying land, but when you're going in and you're working with these cities, you know, you can look them straight in the eye and say, you know, we have our, our equity needed to close on this deal and we're going to close. And so that's been a huge thing for us, especially I think the market we're heading into, you, you, you know, you know that, you know, capital is becoming more and more difficult for folks. And uh, there's, there's very established developers out there that are having a, having a difficult time uh, raising capital. But um, so that's something we're, we're looking to, leverage, you know, going forward and on new projects. So I want to hang there for a bit and just talk about the fund business. 
running a real estate private equity firm, which you have with discretionary capital, first time fund of 125 million is incredibly impressive. So how how did you raise that money with all these public entities? Is that because you do what you do? Did you hire an advisor? It's not easy for a no. first fund. No, it's not easy. In fact, you know, everybody we we were kicking around the idea at the beginning and everybody said you're not going to be able to do this, you know. Right. There's very, you know, established companies have been trying this for years and Yeah, I would I would say it's a little bit of everything. So, number 1, we f- we kind of uh, targeted this unique approach of of partnering with local pension plans. And one of the reasons why we did this is we learned that a lot of these local retirement plans were investing their their money, their, you know, a piece of their portfolio in real estate, but they were investing it outside of the market. So if you really? if you go yeah. to a Fort Lauderdale, you know, police and fire, for instance, and and I have no idea if this is the case or not, but let's say they were uh, they had a percentage of their portfolio in real estate and you know of the projects you know 9 out of 10 were out of the state of Florida and, and out of the and out of the, the the South Florida region well we we kind of found that to be a little bit interesting and we thought well listen if we sit down with these guys and we understand and we tell them about what we do and that they can put their retirement dollars to work in the communities that they serve and they can help make an impact on the communities, not just from a redevelopment standpoint, but from a housing standpoint, which means their employees are, are, are going to be able to benefit from these projects. And they're going to be able to drive their contributors past a project and say, you guys own that. I love it. You know, what a unique thing, right? And and so that became, you know, our approach. And we started working with guys that are close, you know, with certain uh, plans and, and kind of started, run, you know, testing that out to see if that was going to resonate. It did, but I will tell you, it's very, 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 very hard. And, you know, all of these pension plans have gatekeepers. You know, they have their consultants. Right. Their consultants don't want to underwrite affiliated. You know, they want to underwrite Morgan Stanley, right? Or they want to they want to underwrite related, uh, related. You yep. know, uh, uh, certainly a more established institutional grade type of of developer and and that just wasn't us you know and 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 so it was very very difficult and i'm going to give a lot of credit to my business partner nick rojo i mean he really was out front taking the lead on this initiative and was relentless and and just making sure that we did it we did it right we followed through and we stayed in front of people and and eventually we were able to knock knock down one knock down two and once you once you, you know once you do that then it becomes a little easier and and so we're, we're incredibly fortunate you know from our perspective too it, it puts a great deal of onus on what we're doing you know we have these you know these local uh, funds that are invested with us and believe in what we're doing so that uh, we have a lot of weight on our shoulders because of that and take that responsibility very seriously what would surprise folks most about running a first-time $100 million-plus discretionary fund that you didn't realize at the beginning? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, th- I think people w- would probably expect it to be difficult and, and for, for the compliance aspect of things to be very challenging and all. But I would say that 
what would surprise people the most is that once you follow through and you do what you say you're going to do and you demonstrate to them that they made a good decision, right? And that you're able to deliver the types of returns that you said you were going to be able to deliver and that you're able to follow through on the promises that you made. And when you can bring them through a project that you develop and say, look, you know, this is what we did together, that, you know, that that experience makes being in the fun business much, much more enjoyable because, you know, you're under a great deal of scrutiny at the very beginning. And, you know, there's a lot of people doubting you and there's a lot of people trying to poke holes in your program and everything. But, you know, once you're able to follow through and, and do that, I think people would be very surprised that, you know, the, the tone changes a little bit and it becomes, you know, a little bit easier to, you know, to, to get things done in that space. So what does a perfect site look for you then? Like what, what is that site? Like what are the parameters of a perfect site? Employment centers. We want to be close to other high cost housing. We love being close to public transportation. I would say right now, if you jumped on the bright line in, in Miami and took it up to Orlando, you, you'd pass all of our sites. I'd be able to point them all out to you. Got to put some bright line stations there. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's so, no, we're, we're big believers in that. I think more and more people are looking for uh, convenience and, and not wanting to get in their cars. The average workforce renter commutes 30 minutes in each direction every day. Have you found that having the fund has enabled you to tie up sites or get access to sites that you wouldn't have gotten if you didn't have the fund and you had to go syndicate it out or Absolutely. raise capital deal by deal? So certainly we're able to be a lot more competitive. Uh, you know, if, if you're a land seller and, and you know that, that your buyer is going to have to go sell the dream to a, you know, an equity investor, you're probably a little bit less, you know, likely to, to, you know, uh, come to an agreement or at least bend on certain terms. I think that we're able to get in, demonstrate, listen, we have the ability to close and, and that gives people confidence. What is the typical timeline from when you identify one of these deals, taking it through design, construction, lease up? How long does that take? Is it longer than market rent or is it about the same? Well, you know, it's about the same. A lot of times we're going in and, and you know, changing the zoning and doing all that. So it takes some time. Certainly working on our, our gap funding packet, you know, our gap funding approvals. What, you know, sometimes we got to go put together an entire strategy with the city or some kind of policy ahead of, you know, uh, ahead of actually uh, implementing it. So that can take some time. I would say on average, you know, anywhere from 18 to 24 months is, is generally where we're going to fall in, in the bigger cities. Uh, certain cities, we've built two projects in, in Lake Worth Beach, 230 units and another 200 unit project. And we we're able to move pretty quickly. You know, that city is very, very receptive to development. And, you know, we we're able to move much, much quicker than that. Other cities, you know, you know how it is. You go down to the building department and they lose your plans half the time. And it's amazing how much you know. they need housing, but how slow they are to actually put an effort towards getting that housing. Absolutely. I mean, the regulatory environment, it, you know, unfortunately, I found not to be very different. You know, if you go down to the building department, the same set of, of rules and regulations that a market rate guy has to follow is the same set of rule, rules and regulations a workforce guy has to follow. And, and, and to me, that's the problem, right? You know, we have all these challenges uh, put up in front. We're, I'm dealing with the same challenge that all the market rate guys are dealing with. Land availability, construction costs interest rates, insurance, you know, all, 
all that stuff is is relevant in that world. The regulatory environment's the same thing, and that's something that could change. I mean, that's something these cities have the ability, and the counties have the ability to go out and change. And, and certain certain times they'll say, you know, you know, they'll streamline or they'll fast track a, you know, a deal, and and certainly in certain cities uh, when leadership gets involved, and that helps definitely helps pushing things along. Um, you know, I can tell you in a lot of the cities we've worked with, the, when leadership gets involved and said, this is a project that's important to us because it's housing and we need it, you know, it, it'll move things along a little bit quicker, but it can certainly improve. I want to focus on the development side a little bit. So you mentioned you have your own in-house architecture right. and interior design. Are you using those folks to actually be the architect of record on your project? Are they more of a liaison, can do side projects, internal projects, but you're outsourcing that work to someone else? Yeah. So what what we've done, so, you know, we're not stamping the plans, you know, we don't take on that risk, building falls down, you know, <laughs> you don't want that. We don't right? want that. Right. So, you know, and, and we don't have the licenses and all that. So I say in-house, you know, it's, 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 it's not exactly what you would think, but We've got a, a firm. Actually, I started working with up in up in Milwaukee. My very first project, you know. And so I've uh, the owner of the firm, Matt Rinka, is uh, somebody who I was in the trenches with, you know, back in the day. Understands our program. Is a very very talented architect. When I met him, he, he had a, maybe one other employee working for him. You know, I it was the beginning of my career, and we both kind of raised rose up in the industry together. He's he's now got a firm of you know, 50, 60 plus architects, one of, one of the most talented firms in the Midwest. There became a time where we, we got a little bit frustrated with both the pace and the quality of the, of the work product that was coming out of firms in South Florida. You know, listen, a lot of these firms have been, you know, very overwhelmed with business and, yep. and, and good for them. They're making a lot of money and doing a lot of great projects, but work product wasn't that that we, ex we expected. And you know how important that is when you're under construction on a project, you, you, you know, your plans better be on point and, and well detailed. And, and quite frankly, it's important too the pace in which you're getting things done, especially if you're doing public private partnerships and you need to move quickly on certain things, getting our work product done quickly and getting it done right is imperative. And we've worked with good firms down here, but we ultimately decided that it would be much more advantageous for us to control that whole process internally. And so what I did was I went, went to my old pal, Matt, and I said, listen, I know that you're looking to, you know, break into the South Florida market. And I wouldn't otherwise give an out-of-town developer, out-of-town architect an opportunity here because, you know, the regulatory environment. It's hard. You know, know, yeah, knowing these city planners and what they do and, you know, is, is a, you know, very, very important aspect of this. But what we did was a little bit different than that. I said, listen, we've got a huge pipeline of business. You know, we're, we're, we're doing a lot, uh, so much so that, that we need uh, full-time people. So you build a team that is solely dedicated to our business and our product, and we're going to create processes and we're going to create work product. That is, is, we're not going to recreate the wheel on every deal. Right. What we do is what we do. In fact, a lot of the the units that we utilize on one project, we'll just throw that unit down. Meaning the layout. the layout. So the outside might look different, but the two bedroom, the one bedroom, the studio, they all look the same. And you guys have fine tuned that to where it's perfection. 
Exactly. So, uh, you know, amenities, you know, the, the, the feeling of it, you, you don't go, you know, what you do in one city doesn't necessarily translate to another city. And so one of the things we're very proud of is when we go to a city, you know, we tailor that development towards the, 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 the unique attributes of that particular community that we're in. Well, we, so we do it a little different on each deal, but ultimately the building blocks are the same, right? And the structure, MEP, you know, roofing systems, windows, all that stuff that that make up the majority of your line item on a, your budget on a, on a uh, uh, on a schedule of values is, is relatively the same, right? And what I was learning was we were unfortunately dealing with repeat business in the design field, but they were handing it off to different people, and that wasn't translating. Yep. And so I was getting a, a unit lighting plan on the exact on an identical floor plan that was very different than what I had done previously. And I said, "This is ridiculous. We got to figure out a way to do this a, a little bit better." So I went to Matt and I said, "Listen, you build a team uh, down here. They have to be located in South Florida. They have to know and understand, you know, each city and city planner and what they look for and all that. And we'll hire locally." And, and just build a team around our business. But it can all be done under your umbrella. And ultimately, you know, your quality control and your you know, processes and stuff is going to be, you know, how you run that aspect of the business. But we are effectively going to collaborate. And that allows us to be a lot more hands-on. Uh, it allows us to make very rapid uh, decisions. You know, the, the market's always changing. And, and you're either evolving with it or you're doing stuff that's outdated and, and being left behind. So. It's given us uh, some advantages and, you know, I'll let you know, you know, check back with me a couple of years from now. Sounds pretty cool. Know, you know, ultimately, if it, if it does what we're hoping it'll do. But how does that inform your thinking around construction costs and budgeting? Are you also working with one GC that you're basically farming all your business to that enables you to underwrite a deal quicker than most others because you kind of have a standardized floor plan? You know what it costs because you're constantly doing this stuff. What does that side of the construction budgeting process look like? Yeah, you know, we have done, I would say, the majority uh, of our uh, projects with Moss Construction. Scott was on the podcast. Yeah. He's like one of the smartest yeah. guys I know. Amazing. No, I'll say this. Listen, the Moss family is, is, I mean, they're the best in the business for a reason. You know, it starts at the top. You know, it starts with people. You know, you know this. I mean, you know, this is a people industry, you know, and, and relationships are, are the most important thing in, in our business. You know, they take on a similar approach, very similar culture that we have, which is we're in it for the long haul, you know. And uh, I think, you know, we talked a little bit before we, we started, you know, I've never had to pull my contract out yep. with Moss and, and look at it and say, well, this is what it says, you know. There's challenges and there's issues and there's times where we're, you know, disagreeing on certain things, but we sit down and we work through it together. And sometimes we give a little bit and sometimes they give a little bit. Ultimately, the goal is you don't make money at my expense and I don't make money at your expense because we're all in this. To, we're all in this to make money. We're all in this to be successful and feed our families, and make sure that we're, we we build a, a company that we can all be proud of. And 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 they take on that that similar approach. And so. It's been a very good partnership. And one of the things that we've done with them is we have standardized not just our process, but but our product. And really, ultimately, what it does is it, it reduces risk exposure 
from their standpoint and from our standpoint. You know, they don't have to wonder what kind of materials we're going to select and they don't have to wonder what our expectations are in terms of finishes. You know, we just got done punching out a 309 unit deal up in West Palm Beach called the Grand. And they already know what our expectations are. A lot of these guys that we, when I walk on a construction site, I see the same guy that was working on our previous four projects. You awesome. know, and they know us and, and they, they know, you know, you go to an OAC meeting, they already know how we're going to respond before we respond. Right? right. And so it makes those meetings pretty brief <laughs> at times, you know? And, and so we've been able to create that. Now we are obviously branching out of uh, South Florida. We're starting to look at some markets up in the space coast and Orlando and Tampa and, and, and uh, down into Fort Myers, you know, so I think the, you know, we, we are going to have to create this, you know, similar type of structure with others but i can tell you that that's how we've done it with moss and it's 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 worked well for us and a lot of people in real estate particularly in south florida i think underestimate the value of relationships and it's so important because real estate is so hard everyone glamorizes it and makes it look so easy and so fun but it is fucking hard every single day and if you have a great relationship that can save you here and save you there. And it's one less thing that you have to not worry about, but stress over or be concerned that you're going to have a problem at the end of the day. It allows you to focus on what you're actually in it for. And that's the business of making money and providing, you know, housing for families and fulfilling your mission. Absolutely. You know, it's our job as developers is to manage risk. And 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 uh, fiduciaries, right? Our job is to manage risk and and repeat business. You know, uh, dealing with the same people, same procedures. You know, that's that's one very good way to do that. So I had Evan Schlecker from Morgan mm-hmm. on the podcast, and God bless these guys. They have like fifteen to twenty development projects going on at one time. They have their own GC, their own construction group. Right. Yep. That is a tremendous responsibility to keep that beast and that machine going. Have you ever thought about bringing construction in-house or do you like working with a third party but having this close relationship where it feels like they're in-house, like the architect, but they're really not? Right. No, I don't think I have any interest in being in the construction business. I Neither mean, do I. You know, Leave it to Scott. We, we, yeah, we've got enough to worry about. You know, and and I'll tell you, construction is a it's a it's a challenging business. And and I can tell you, you know, just in these past, you know, five years, what have we experienced? You know, tariffs, right. a pandemic, you know, supply material shortages. Now we're gonna be dealing with labor, you know, issues. You know, it's it's always something. It's always something. And you know, development's hard enough. Uh, you know, I think our job as developers is to hire the best in the business, rely on people, hold them accountable, but also give, you know, give people a tremendous amount of, of uh, leeway to go do what they're really good at doing. And so, you know, th- that's our approach. I don't think we have any, in, you know, any interest. Now, with that being said, we are involved and we're heavily involved in, you know, in the construction uh, process. Uh, but we do a lot on the front side. We work really, really hard with Moss, probably more so, uh, you know, than most of their clients on the front side. You know, what I mean by that is before we sign a GMP, before we start construction, 
we're at 100% plans. We're on a 100% permitted set of plans. We've gone through the qualifications. We've gone through every single thing that's going to be in that. Including your interior finishes and fit out. Absolutely. Because once we get going, I, my resources are not, not best spent being on the job site every day and, and selecting materials and fighting over, you know, design clarifications and all that. Our, our, our time is best spent doing development. And, and so we turn it over. So do you think it's best then to, on a project, pump the brakes a little bit, wait till you literally have 100% plans, not maybe 90% plans, actual real 100% plans, get a firm, firm, firm GMP that is only subject to legitimate ads that you were doing and not things that maybe you thought were in the plans and Mm -hmm. they would have assumed and they didn't, whatever. Is that what you've learned to be the best practice as a developer? Yeah. I mean, it works for us. You know, if you're a condominium guy, that's really hard to do because there's so many changes that you're making throughout based upon your buyers and so on and so forth. You know, that's a whole different business model. In our business model, we found that to be the most advantageous from the standpoint of of mitigating risk and and using our resources wisely. Do you do any design build or is it mostly you're engineering the MEP and they're subbing it out or do you do a lot of design build MEP? Well, you know, no, we do some of that in the sense that we like, you know, we're relationship guys. A lot of these subcontractors that that do right by us, we want to work with them again, you know? And so uh, in some respects, you know, we'll give certain subs an opportunity to really get in kind of from the beginning and help us, you know, naturally they're going to be the most competitive anyways. Of course, we need to make sure that, you know, we'll, we'll definitely, you know, go out to market and make sure that, that they are being competitive. But they, if the more involved they are in the design and the more they have their heads into a, a deal, naturally, the more competitive they're going to be. I want to talk a little bit about how you're underwriting these deals. Do you have a very set formula, a box, and spend most of your time focusing on getting the incentives? Or is the underwriting very different for each deal and you're having to tweak a lot of different variables? And then also, where are you getting your data from? Like, How do you know what the subs, I don't know, what do you call it? The subsize or the affordable portion is versus the market rent. Mm -hmm. How do you figure that out? And then how do you roll that all into your underwriting? And then I guess what I'm really asking is also, what do your returns look like Mm -hmm. compared to a typical market rent guy? So I would tell you that from a a capitalization standpoint, you know, sources and uses standpoint, our deals are, are, are relatively the same across the board. The gap funding portion of it is always different. It's on a case by case basis. Depends what municipality we're in, what our you know uh, potential sources of gap funding revenues are, and so on and so. And when you say gap funding, what does that mean? And that means our subsidies, our incentives. So, so that's always different. But but it's basically raising less equity because you're just putting in money from someone else, right? It, it is. It it you know certainly requires you to to raise less um, equity on on a project, but I would say within, you know, when we're doing a test fit, which is, you know, you show me a piece of property and you say, all right, Jeff, here's a piece of property. You know, what do you think you can do? That same day, 
all have sources and uses put together on the project. We'll have a pretty good understanding of what type incentives we might be able to, to layer in and accomplish and how we're going to capitalize the project. And I'll tell you, from that point until the day that we close, it's, you'd be surprised how, how spot on we are when we, when we look at a deal. So, so generally from the very, very beginning, you know, we're looking at that and we've got a good understanding of what that's going to look like. You know, returns wise, a big thing in the business these days is impact capital, impact investors. You know, certainly there's endowments and foundations, you know, certain groups out there that are doing a really good job attracting lower cost capital in the affordable workforce housing space. I can tell you that's something that, you know, people are very heavily involved in the industry or are all trying to to get figured out. Unfortunately, <laughs> what we found is that investors are still expecting the same types of, of returns on workforce deals, on deals that, that have that ESG component to them that they are on market rate deals. And, and so the expectation from an investor is similar that you would see on the market rates that it really doesn't change. And your waterfall in terms of promotes and all that kind of stuff is the same. Yeah, They're the same. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're doing market rate stuff now. I think that's changing, you know, that's going to change. You know, there's certainly groups like like Turner Impact Capital and stuff like that that are out there and they've they figured out a way to 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 do it. There's other groups that are being innovative in terms of of ways to figure it out and 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 doing projects not 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 for profits and stuff like that, but capitalization is what you would see on any typical market rate type of project. So what kind of returns are you targeting on deals today? I would say mid to high teens. IRR yeah, IRR. And then um, what does your hold period look like? Well, so that that's what sets us apart a little bit. So we're, we're generally long-term hold guys. So I would say, you know, probably 90% of the people in the multifamily industry are merchant builders, yep. right? Maybe, maybe yep. more. To this day, we've never sold a project. Uh, we own all of our, our assets. We, our objective, you know, and it comes by virtue of investing in some of these markets that are within the natural progression of growth, right? We're not really going to be able to do our best within the first three years, but like, you know, maybe year seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, it starts to look more attractive in some of these areas as things pop up around it. So we're longer term hold guys and and our return profile is similar to what you would see. Okay. So I want to get into it now because I like the longer term hold model because the reality is even in my business, I've had some hotels that I sell because I feel like it's a good time to sell. Yeah. I want to get into my promote. Right. You know, we said we were going to yeah. hold the deal for yeah. three to five years yes. yeah. and I'm selling. But I know because this is great real estate over time, this thing's going to be worth more than what I'm selling it for today if I would have held it for another five or 10 years. H how do you structure your incentives with your investors so that you as the GP, the sponsor can make money, but then still hold it for sure. 10 years, 20 years, however long you're holding it for. Yeah. So we have some, we have a couple of different strategies. Well, number one, by virtue of what we do workforce housing, we do qualify for certain financing that that's generally a little bit more attractive on the secondary market than, than the market rate guys would. So there are certainly times that we're able to you know, and, and we take on 
you know, lower leverage. You know, we're not the guys that lever up. We don't, we don't do the whole debt fund, try to get it up to 80 thing. You know, you know, I value my sleep. Not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because those guys are coming for your workforce housing. They don't <laughs> yeah, want to be a lender. Exactly. They want to be a yeah. developer. Yeah. Yeah. We're, you know, we're, we're fine in that kind of 60% range. But uh, so, you know, a lot of times we'll come back in once we've, once we've been able to get the project built and all that. And, and a lot of times our, our refinancing, you know, is, is big enough to be able to give investors a very, very good portion of their, their investment back. We also have a structure set up with some of our, or, uh, particularly one of our family offices uh, who have similar mind mindset as us, which is, you know, holding these assets long-term. I mean, what better market, right, uh, than, than South Florida? There's no and, better market. It's and, the greatest and, place. And, you know, you know, the barriers to entry are significant. I mean, to, to, to build in South Florida is really hard. You know, I see a lot of these, you know, New York guys coming down and buying land and stuff. Now, you know, they're learning that, right? They're learning. This is a difficult environment. To- it's a small town. Like we had That's a New right. York developer trying to build this big tower next to one of our hotels and they were looking for all these variances. And I'm like, dude, I just had lunch with the mayor last week. Like you're nope. trying to bully me and you're in a high rise in New York City right yeah. now. Like it just doesn't work out like that. No, it, it certainly doesn't. And and uh, their approach is a little different than ours. I mean. But you know it's 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 you know it's so challenging to do these deals, and quite frankly, you know, for us, we're doing public-private partnerships. I mean, how would that look if I was, you know, working with the city? We utilize certain incentives, and then I turned around, you know, two years from completion and sold it for buckets of money. I mean, that's you know, that's not really. So, are you doing like promote crystallization at sure. all? So, yeah, so we have we have a, a structure where we we partner with cer- certain uh, f- family office. You know, they'll come in and 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 recapitalize, recap the the stack, and then and then stay in, and then we'll continue to stay on as as GP and and you know, roll ours in and own it long term. So we, we we do do that, but you know, you spend years of your life, you pick out a piece of property. You go through all the brain damage and all the challenges that are involved in development. You finally get it built. You know, Nick and I look at each other, you know, God, that was a lot of work. You know, we want to hold that long term, especially in the market that we're in. hundred percent. Are you guys managing all these properties once you construct them or are you farming it out to third parties? Yeah, currently we're, we're, we're a third party. How do you find these management companies that you work with? We only actually currently work with one. A local Fort Lauderdale firm, Castle Residential. We were probably their first or second client in the um, multifamily rental space. Pre, you know, prior to that, they—I mean, you know—they're the largest, I, I believe, the largest condominium association right. management company in the, in the state. But we, uh, you know, we're on on the forefront with them on the rental side, and so certainly worked with them. We we have asset management, in-house asset management. We intensely manage the management company. And how do you measure if they're doing a good job? What do you look for? Well, yeah, depending, yeah, uh, depending on how my blood pressure is doing at the end of the week, you know. <laughs> no, I, you know, listen, we, we have very high expectations and we set very, very uh, aggressive goals for ourselves, is, you know, both of, as a 
company, but also individually with our employees. Um, we're very, very aggressive in goal setting and, and, and we hold ourselves to a very high standard and we hold them to a very high standard too. And, you know, sometimes that puts a lot of pressure on them. And, and I can tell you it's probably not, you know, we might, might not be their, their favorite client at certain times, but, but we're involved and we want to make sure that we get it right. You know, these public private partnerships and, and dealing with, with folks that are in need for this type of housing, it's incredibly important. That, that we do it right. And so there's a lot of pressure on us. Therefore, there's a lot of pressure on the management company to do a good job. Right, because the public portion of this will hear about it if you guys screw it up and then they won't give you another deal, right? It goes I'll back to the relationships. What, we get phone calls all the time because they they know it. So, you know, and sometimes it's, 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 it's not found, right? Like sometimes it's just some right. picked off tenant and, you know, you know, she's upset about something and she writes the, the, the mayor, the commissioners, you know, tell them how, you know, how, how, you know, what bad people we are and everything. But absolutely. I mean, we want people to have a good experience and certainly by virtue of, of our public private partnership structure, we want to make sure that, 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 you know, our management company is held to that same level that we're holding ourselves. And, and you know, if they were here, they would probably say that, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> I'm probably going to get canceled for saying this, but um, <laughs> my uh, my sister lived in a building in Boston, and there was some portion of that building that was, I don't know what it was, subsidized housing or yeah. something. And I, I was in one of the public amenities, and all these people were like coming in, like getting coffee in this room, like. Geez, it looks like a bunch of homeless people like are in your building. I don't understand what's going on. And she's like, "No, this is the affordable housing." And I think it was like very, 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 very low income mixed with very <clears throat> high income. Yeah, that seems to be different from what you're doing. Yeah. But still, how how do you blend the amenities and the expectations with someone spending? $5,000 a month with someone else spending $2,000 a month. And maybe there's not much of a difference there and that's how you do it versus, you know, what is some, in some of these other cities, which seems kind of strange. Yeah. So what you're ta probably talking about is inclusionary housing, which is by virtue, you know, going to be your, your low, you know, or very low income folks. So it, it's, you know, we don't do the low income housing. Um, like I said, it's a huge need and, and there's groups out there doing a terrific job at it, but you know, ours are generally moderate to middle income. So these are actually folks that are living in market rate communities right now. They're just either in a roommate situation or they're spending 60% of their income on housing. So these are folks that, that are accustomed to the amenities, they're accustomed to the quality finishes, they're accustomed to the level of service. So we better give it to them. Our job is to just give it to them at a fair price. And so, you know, our, our number one thing with, with mixed income housing is to give everybody the same level of experience, the same quality of finish, the same amenities, you know, and all that. Everybody coexists in the building. Nobody knows who makes what. And, and, and honestly, 
that's why people live in an urban environment. I always, I always, I always. You want to mix folks, it up. I always tell people, listen, if you want to live where everybody makes within a couple thousand dollars of each other, and you know, you, there's plenty of cul-de-sac communities that are perfect for you. Yep. If you want to live in a city, you thrive off of the diverse nature of that city and the fact that not everybody is the exact same and and there's unique things to do and, and, and unique people to do it with. And, and I think that's something that we embrace and, and our goal is to give that level of experience to those folks and, and really have everybody exist in the same building without there being these are these people and those are those people. I can tell you right now, if you go to any of our projects, nobody knows who's getting a break and nobody, unless they're running around bragging that they're getting <laughs> a discount on market rent, you know. It's an awesome place to leave it. I ask all the guests on the podcast the same closing question, and that is, what is your favorite hotel? Dalmar, of course. Awesome. You're the first one to say that. Hey, listen, I, I will tell you this, and this is genuine. The bar at the Terrace Grill on the first floor is one of my favorite bars in the city, if not my favorite bar. You guys did a terrific job designing that. You almost feel like you're in New York. I just, I love everything about it. And whenever I get an opportunity, I'm in there having, having a drink. So Thank you. Well, you're a VVIP for life. And interesting fact on the Downmar. So the Downmar is a four diamond hotel, downtown Fort Lauderdale. It's really our only boutique lifestyle hotel. The Ritz on the beach just lost its four diamond status. Oh, really? Wow. And it's a competitor of ours. So the Dalmar is doing something right. And I'm proud of those guys. And you're going to be a VIP for life. So well, thanks you, very much. You hit the market right on that. Because I'll tell you, there wasn't that type of, of option right. in the downtown. And as Fort Lauderdale grows and we become a real city, which we're, right. we're a real city. Right. Uh, you know, you made the right bet. And now so the question is for us... The Ritz still, you know, smokes us in Ray. They're on the beach. Yes. It, it's a Ritz. People, you know, know that. Now our service standards might be higher according to, you know, AAA Four Diamond. But what we have to do as a city of Fort Lauderdale is make the downtown 95% as compelling as the beach so that we can get the rates almost 95, 90% of where the beach is at. And I think that's where things are going. If you look at Del Rey, West Palm. I can't tell you how many deals I passed on in West Palm. And I'm now kicking myself oh, because sure. that is like, you know, Palm Beach Island became ultra, ultra, ultra luxury. Yep. West Palm is now ultra luxury. That's and right. I was like, whoever, who else would stay here? But yeah, it's incredible. It. You hit it. I missed it. <laughs> it's, it's exciting. I'll tell you, there's probably no place that's going to experience the amount of growth and transformation in downtown West Palm Beach in the next 10 years. So you think that's your biggest bet in Florida right now? I would say it's our most, I would say it's our most exciting for sure. I mean, that city and what's going on and the folks that are there and the leadership is is just all lining up to really transform that city. It's going to be remarkable to watch and, and we're happy to be a part of it. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, Appreciate thanks you. for having me. It's been fun. It was fun. All right. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. 
All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.